Amen. Thank you guys for leading us this morning. This is from the New York Post. The title of the article is New York City Hipsters Can Now Rent a Mom. She'll listen to your problems, sew that button back on, and never try to act cool in front of your friends. Meet Nina Keneally, 63, a Brooklyn-based mom of two grown sons who has now begun selling her surplus mothering skills for $40 an hour plus expenses. Keneally's new business, Need a Mom, caters to 20 to 35-year-olds who need a mother, but not their own nagging, guilt-tripping, real-life mom. She'll dish dish out criticism-free advice over coffee, help plan and shop for a dinner party, bake a cake and bring it over, and even buy presents for your actual mother and wrap them for you. Need a mom is a shoulder to cry on, not a cleaning service, Keneally stressed on Wednesday. Don't expect me to clean your closet or do your laundry, she warned, adding in true mom fashion, I'm not your maid. She also won't be your actual shrink, but she will make referrals. I find that they reach out to me, she said of the millennials she'd meet in yoga studios and cafes. Keneally offered advice and 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 a compassionate ear and realized she could monetize her mothering. She has about six clients so far, all in her neighborhood of Bushwick. All the friends and people around me are the same age, and shrinks are just kind of impersonal, Natalie Chan, 34, explained. She pays Keneally $40 for coffee and counseling sessions after their Thursday yoga class each week. She doesn't judge, Chan added. She just kind of like smiles and says, stop doing that. She'll never say you're stupid. Doesn't that make you grateful for the church? Young adults, you uh, see how much money you can save by just being a part of a local church. You don't have to rent a mom. Uh, The story caught my attention this week because in the passage that we looked at last Sunday, Titus 2, 1 through 10, Paul is laying out how the people in the church are to interact with one another, how they are to adorn the gospel with good works, how they are to live distinctively Christian lives in an immoral and depraved Cretan culture. And one of the things Paul said within that passage, he said that the older women are to mentor and teach the younger. And then he gave a description of the conduct and character of the younger women in the church. And anyway, it got packed to me that some of the young moms in our church were a little discouraged by last week's sermon. Discouraged because what Paul described as the ideal doesn't even come close to the reality in their home. And in their minds, the ideal that Paul puts forth is sort of impossible, which I get that. Maybe you have four kids, two in diapers, everything's crazy, and it's a weekly miracle that you even make it to church. I get that. And so I'll stand here this morning, and I'll I'll double down on your discouragement and say, you're absolutely right. The ideal young woman that Paul puts forth in verse 4 and 5, that is impossible. In your own strength, in your own power, in your own isolated effort, it is impossible to love and to submit to your husband, to love your children, to manage your home well, to be kind and to be pure and to be self-controlled. It's impossible. Which is why I'm so glad that Paul wrote the next four verses. 
The next four verses in chapter 2 supply the fuel for what's been prescribed in those first 10 verses in chapter 2. Without the power and the truth of what we're about to read, any actualization of what we looked at last week is, in fact, impossible. So let's read it together. Titus chapter 2, if you're not there already, I'll be reading verses 11 to 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Commentator Philip Towner, he calls this passage the rhetorical high point of the letter, which means everything Paul has said thus far leads up to this. And then what he will say from here on is going to flow from it. It's the rhetorical high point of the letter. And in reading this passage, you you notice the mention of two appearings. First, the grace of God has appeared. That's verses 11 and 12. Paul gives an explanation of what happens when the grace of God appears. And then in verse 13, Paul says, the glory of God will appear. And that's a future event that has not yet happened. So the grace of God has appeared. The glory of God will appear. And then verse 14, we see that the gift of God is amazing. Those are my three points this morning. Let's start there in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. The close connection of these four verses, this long run-on sentence that Paul gives us, the connection to the previous ten verses is established by the first word there in verse 11, the word for. Four introduces Paul's theological rationale for prescribing or encouraging the conduct described in verses 1 through 10. Why and how can Paul demand that the lives of the Cretan Christians look how he described? Well, because of grace. That's what follows the opening preposition for, for the grace of God. The grace of God. This is a phrase used a total of 15 times throughout Paul's letters. And it's used to describe unmerited divine favor. What is meant by unmerited divine favor, you ask? Well, it means that God has shown believers in Christ, God has shown you immeasurable mercy and love and compassion. He has shown you grace. And it's not because you deserve his kindness in any way, shape, or form. It's not because you've earned his mercy by your good works or your supreme worthiness. None of that. It is 100% by the grace of God. God's kindness comes to you and it comes to me by grace. Turn of the century revival preacher, a man named Harry Morehouse. He tells the story of walking along the street in a poor part of Chicago where he witnessed a minor tragedy. A small boy who could not have been more than six years of age came out of a store with a pitcher of milk. 
The little guy was making his way carefully along the street when he slipped and fell, the pitcher breaking and the milk running all over the sidewalk. The boy let out a wail, and Harry Morehouse rushed to see if he were hurt. There was no physical damage, but the child would not be consoled, crying over and over and over, my mama will whip me, my mama will whip me. Mr. Morehouse said to him, well, maybe the pitcher is not broken in too many pieces. Let us see if we can put it back together again. The boy stopped crying at once. And he watched as Mr. Morehouse placed the base of the pitcher on the sidewalk and started building up the pieces. There were one or two failures, and the pieces fall apart, and each failure, the boy started crying again. But he was silenced by the big preacher who was helping him so much. Finally, the entire pitcher was reconstructed from the pieces, and it stood there in perfect shape on the sidewalk. The little fellow was given the handle, and he poked it toward the place where it belonged. And of course, he knocked the whole thing apart once more. This time, there was no stopping his tears, and it was, it was then that Mr. Morehouse gathered the boy in his arms and walked him down the street to a crockery store. There he bought the lad a new pitcher. Then he went back to the milk store, and he had the pitcher washed and filled with milk. And carrying the boy on one arm and the pitcher of milk in the other, he followed the boy's instructions until they arrived at his home. Very gently, Morehouse deposited the lad on his front steps. Carefully, he put the pitcher in his hands, and then he said to him, Now will your mama whip you? A smile broke on the boy's streaked face, and he answered, Ah, oh, no, sir, because it's a lot better pitcher than we had before. And Morehouse applies this experience in this way. He says, The story may be simple, but it represents faintly what the Lord Jesus Christ did for me and for you. Whether you will accept the fact or not, you had dropped the pitcher of your life, and its milk was spilled beyond regathering. You may have spent much time trying to patch the pieces together again, but God assures you that you are broken beyond your own repair. It was when you were broken and hopeless in the despair of your lost condition that the Lord Jesus intervened to save you. He may have watched your efforts at patching for a while until you could come to the place where you believed beyond question that it is impossible for you to repair your life in a way that would ever satisfy the holiness of your heavenly Father. It was then that he carried you in the strength of his arms and purchased for you an entirely new nature, a new life which he imparted to you on the basis of of his loving kindness and his tender mercy. It was not because there was good in you, but because there was grace in him. So that's the kind of image we need to have when we think about the grace of God. We are a people with ruined lives, unable to fix ourselves or our situation. We are hopeless and scared, but ultimately rescued by a kindness that is outside of us, ultimately rescued by grace. But we don't serve grace well if we just reduce it to an abstraction or an illustration. In this passage, it actually tells us this. It tells us this by saying that the grace of God, it has appeared. That word appeared is the word epiphany. In Greek literature, this word functioned as a technical term to describe a hero or a god who broke into a hopeless situation to rescue someone from danger. Sort of like Superman. Have no fear, Superman is here. So when Paul uses this same word, epiphany, to describe the coming of grace, he is intertwining grace with the very person of Jesus Christ. 
Meaning, when Christ came to earth, when the Son of God became man, when he, when he was sent to save sinners, grace appeared. Not as an abstraction or a feeling, but in a person. Remember John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1, where it says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have received grace upon grace. The accuser, the devil, more than anything, hates grace because it renders him powerless against us. I love what the old hymn writer Isaac Watts wrote. He says, Plunged in a gulf of dark despair, we wretched sinners lay, without one cheerful beam of hope or spark of glimmering day. With pitying eyes, the Prince of Grace beheld our helpless grief. He saw, and oh, amazing love, he ran to our relief. He appeared. Commenting on the grace of God, J.I. Packer, profoundly, he wrote this, Grace in the New Testament is not an impersonal energy automatically switched on by prayer and sacraments. No, grace is but the heart and the hand of the Almighty God. And the text says this personified grace, it brought something. It brought salvation for all people. The previous section, verses 1 through 10, spell out just how wide-reaching this salvation actually is. It bypasses no one. It appears to all, all regardless of age, regardless of sex or social standing. Therefore, no one can say, I have an honored place in the church because I belong to this certain group or because I have this certain heritage or I'm this kind of person. No, it comes for all kinds of people, not just certain kinds of people. This saving grace in the person of Christ is not at all limited in scope. This grace is offered to and it is sufficient for all people regardless of how terrible or terrific they may be. But what you need to understand is that the word all does not mean every individual. It does not mean that every single person is saved. Paul is not teaching universalism here or anywhere. Don't read bringing salvation to all men and think that everyone everywhere is covered. No, all means all kinds of people, every tribe and tongue and nation, male, female, young, old, slave, free, all people. You see, Christianity is at the same time the most inclusive and exclusive religion on the face of the earth. Inclusive because any person anywhere at any time can come to Jesus for salvation. They just repent and believe. No other religion has that kind of inclusiveness. But at the same time, the Bible says it is only through Jesus that you can be saved. So it's thoroughly exclusive as well. Our world hates the gospel's exclusivity. That only through Christ can you be saved. But despite its exclusive nature, the gospel has saved people from everywhere the church has taken it. Because it's for all people. It is utterly 
inclusive. And so look at how verse 12 there, look look at there and, and see that the grace is not only appearing, bringing salvation for all, as if that weren't enough. It gets active in your life. It teaches or or trains. There are two aspects to grace's teaching. First, grace teaches the the believer negatively, which means it teaches us to deny or to say no to ungodliness, which ungodliness is the root problem shared by every single one of us. Without grace, we are all ungodly. Ungodliness is our idolatry combined with our immorality. We worship false gods and counterfeit gods, and we follow that with lives that are gross and immoral. But when grace comes, when grace takes over, the sinner repudiates that ungodliness. And this repudiation is a definitive act. It's a clear decision to give up that which is displeasing to God. We refer to this as repentance. Which then causes us to reject worldly passions. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. These these strong sinful passions that previously controlled us, they now have been pushed back by, by grace. The inordinate desire we have for pleasure and power and possessions, these worldly passions which are an outflow of our ungodliness, they lose our grip, their grip upon our hearts because of the grace of God. So it's, it's not willpower that gets you to renounce worldly passions. It's not enlightenment or intelligence. It is grace. It's by grace that you deny these things. And people, you may have seen this, they often abuse grace. They, they say, I, I can do this or that, I, I'm under grace. I'm not under law, I'm under grace. Okay, well, well, well here though, it's telling us grace is actually a fuel to say no to ungodliness. So it instructs us negatively, but it also instructs us positively. It trains us, it trains us to live sensibly. So, so this grace has a positive inward dimension. It results in what's repeated throughout the book of Titus, which is self-control. It teaches us to be upright. It has a positive outward dimension where others can look to us as people with honesty and integrity because we are upright people. And then grace trains us to be reverent in this present age, godly. This is an upward dimension. So inward and outward, now upward. When we realize that we live our lives before God, that trains us to live lives of worship and devotion to the Lord. Not out of fear or out of duty, but out of gratitude. And all of this, it says, we do this in the present age. Which is to say, we do this in a time where we look back to Jesus Christ We look back to God's tangible manifestation of grace in the birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In that event, grace appeared. And we also look forward as Christians to another appearing, to another epiphany, which brings us to the next point. The glory of God will appear. That's the next appearing here. 
So not grace now, but glory. As Christians, we are very good at looking back at that first appearing. We're, we're good at looking back to the baby in the manger and the Jesus of the Gospels and the man on the cross. We're good at remembering, oh man, Christmas is coming. Think of all that we start to do beginning in about September so we can meaningfully commemorate the first advent of, of Jesus Christ. But here's the deal, and here's what should equally excite you. He's coming again. He came the first time in grace and truth, and he's going to come a second time in the fullness, as mind-blowing as this may be, in the fullness of his glory. And the text calls this our blessed hope. Now, I realize that many of us in this room this morning, we have some things that we're hoping for. We're hoping for better health. We're hoping for financial security. We're, we're hoping that the pain goes away or the anxiety goes away or the depression goes away. Maybe you're hoping that a loved one comes back to the Lord. What we're, we're all hoping. We spend much of our lives hoping. But the thing is, I have no idea if what you are hoping for is actually going to come to pass. I have no idea if your suffering is going to go away or if what you're hoping for is really going to happen. I can encourage you, I can pray for you, but I cannot assure you that any of these things maybe that you're hoping for this morning will ever come to be. But I, I am absolutely certain that Christ will come again in glory. I can assure you that just as he fulfilled the promise in his first coming, he, he'll keep his promise by, by, by coming again. And when he comes, that will mark our deliverance from the evil and suffering in this world. That will be the end to the sin in our lives, to our battle with these worldly passions. It'll be the glorious appearing of our blessed hope. And just to be clear, because the language in verse 13 is a little tricky, the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, Paul is not referring to two different persons in the Godhead here. He's not saying the glory of our great God and then our, our Savior Jesus Christ. Those two things are going to appear. No, he's saying Jesus Christ will appear in glory and his glory will be the glory of God and that's because Jesus Christ is fully God. This is a powerful and explicit declaration that Jesus is divine. And the knowledge that our God in all his glory and fullness is coming again, this creates hopeful expectancy in the life of the believer. Expectancy that, that generates faithfulness to him when the days are dark. And it grants perseverance in times of trial. I love the writing of A.W. Tozer. I was reading in a book just last night about the coming of the Lord, and this paragraph struck me. He said, We can see the distress of nations. There are a hundred remedies offered, but not one of them works. Christians have the only true hope. It is the message concerning the one who is worthy, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is worthy, the glorious one. The one who is worthy is coming, so we need to desire to be faithful 
to him and knowing that he will ultimately deliver us, that he will vanquish our enemies, that he will set the whole world right by his redeeming power and glory. That's our cause for godly living in this present age. The imminent return of our Savior is sanctifying in nature. So those are the appearings. The great theologian John Stott said of these two appearings, he says, the best way to live now in this present age is to learn to do spiritually what is impossible physically. Namely, to look in opposite directions at the same time. To look back at the coming of the Lord in his life and his death and his resurrection and to look forward toward that glorious appearing. We're in this present age, like people in a room with two sets of windows, and we look back one direction at the gracious appearing of our Lord, and we look forward to the glorious return. Let's look at the gift in this passage, verse 14. What's given to us is amazing. Verse 14, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Brian Chappell, he states this about this passage. He says, The apostle designs every phrase of this beautiful verse to exude the wonder of Christ's work and the consequent status of his people. And so before we talk about that status, our status as God's people, let's first see that what exactly we are recipients of. We're recipients of a gift, and the gift is Jesus Christ himself. It's the Son of God. It's the second member of the Trinity. He gave himself for us. Hendrickson said, Contemplation of this sublime thought should result in a life lived to his honor. But it doesn't stop just at substitution, as amazing and as sublime as that may be. The rest of the verse unpacks what Christ's giving himself accomplishes. This is our status our status. First, we are redeemed. He has redeemed us from all lawlessness. The word redeem literally means to release upon the receipt of ransom. To release upon the receipt of ransom. Our being redeemed cost something. It was pricey. Jesus speaks of himself as the cost. He calls himself our ransom. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul in 1 Timothy 2 verse 6 says, There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom. Christ rescued us by becoming a ransom for sin in our place in order to satisfy divine justice and to free us from our guilt. To say he redeemed us, to, to state that we have redeemed status, means an ultimate price has been paid for our release. And that price, of course, was Jesus Christ. Something of infinite value was given to buy you back to God. And so that should tell you something of your value to him. You only pay for something what it is worth to you. And what you are worth to God the Father is the price he paid for you, which is God the Son. Second verse 14 says we are cleansed. I derived cleansed from the word purified. We are purified. Christ offered himself to purify a people for himself. 
The phrase is intended to remind us of the Old Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, there was every type and manner of cleansing. Every sacrifice and ceremony and offering and, and, and washing, every discipline and duty was to bring purity, but it never actually accomplished true purification. None of it actually finished the job. They always had to do it again and again and again and again. And that's because God had given the ceremonies and the offerings and the law to his people, not to make them clean, but to show them their need for cleansing. So as the fulfillment of those practices, Christ's sacrifice, his shed blood, it cleanses all of those who come to him in faith. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's the doctrine of expiation, the doctrine that, that says through the sacrifice of Jesus, we have been cleansed from the defilement of our sin. By Christ giving himself on the cross, we are made clean, whiter than snow, blameless, pure. What the blood of bulls and goats could never do, Jesus did, and he did it once and for all. Third status there in verse 14, we are treasured. Having redeemed and cleansed us at such a terrible price, God's attitude toward us could be, it could be one of resentment maybe. It could, especially when we're so ungrateful. But instead, we who are purchased and purified, he now claims us as a people for his own possession. The Greek phrase reflects the wording of Exodus 19 verse 5 where God identified his covenant people as my treasured possession. We are precious to God. Our sin had us at odds with God, but his son made us his very own. We are not a people now that he tolerates. We are a people in which he celebrates. Celebrates because of the momentous work of the son and what it accomplished. It accomplished a people who are now his a people who are in Christ, in union with Christ, a people whom God looks upon and sees. He sees not their sin and not their dysfunction, but he sees Christ the Son, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus covering each and every one of us. But just to summarize, because Christ's work alone purchases our salvation purchases that through the redeeming price of his blood. And because Christ's work alone purif purifies us through the cleansing that his blood supplies, we do not look to our own works as the basis of our acceptance with God. Doing what God requires does not make us his own, but having been made his own by no work of ourselves, we now love him who first loved us. That's where we're taken. That's where we're driven by this wondrous grace of God. Such love, such manifestation of love, it has profound effects upon our attitudes and our actions. It's the kind of love which makes us, as the passage says, zealous for good works. It's our love for Christ that drives us to be like Christ and to love what Christ loves. Our lives are not a product of our thinking. Our, our choices don't come down to mere willpower. What we do, who we are, it's a product of what we love. Do you love 
Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you've never come to a place where you look upon the Savior with great love in your heart, I invite you to do that today, and I invite you to do it as a response to the love that's been shown you through the grace and the mercy of God. A love poured out, a love intended to draw you unto himself, to make you his own possession. Look to Christ today if you never have. Verse 15 says, declare these things. Declare them, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Paul's command to Titus and the other elders in Crete is to simply preach the gospel. Don't let anyone tell you that it's foolish. Don't let anyone tell you there's another way to to grow a church or to feed the flock or build up the body. Talk about redemption in Jesus and cleansing in Jesus and salvation in Jesus. And in Jesus alone, preach that the grace of God has appeared. And let no one disregard you. That's how the passage ends. Which that word disregard, this is the idea of thinking around So the message is literally, let no one get around the truth of the gospel with another kind of gospel. Let no one think around you. What what a great way to preserve biblical gospel doctrine in the church. If anyone shows up and promotes something other than the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, then they are disregarding the true gospel. They're not refining it. They're not making it better in any way. In fact, they're ruining it. And so when you talk about the gospel, the truth that dominates the subject of that gospel is the grace of God. Grace alone, the reformers once labeled it. And where grace reigns, grace trains. People will live lives that honor him. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now in praise of who you are, in worship of your majesty and your holiness and your righteousness, your power, your sovereignty, certainly your wisdom. Lord, and we come to this place as a people who have been given grace grace has appeared. It's appeared in the work of your Son. We look to Jesus and Jesus alone to save us from our sin. And God, we anticipate that glorious day when he will return. We live lives now making ourselves ready for our blessed hope. Lord, we, we, we confess together that we love Christ, but we also confess we come to that because of your love for us and the grace that you've given each of us. God, I pray that this passage would fuel our hearts as we we go into this next week, as we seek to be ambassadors of the Lord Jesus, people who are so graced of God that others in our lives inquire because of what they see going on in us and outside of us and in our relationship to you. Grant us this peace. Our Father, it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand for our benediction. A couple of announcements before I pray us out of the room here. 
One, there is going to be a prayer meeting next Sunday night. That prayer meeting has a specific focus, which will be uh, the sending of our Kenya team. We have 19 individuals headed to Kenya to aid in a church planting project. Uh, So we're excited about what they're going to get to go do there. Uh, But we want to send them off with much prayer. So that's going to happen next Sunday night. You can look in your bulletin about details for that. Another uh, item to pray for on the tables in the foyers, there are uh, green bracelets with the names of our high school campers on them. Uh, Our high school students have gone off to camp at Estes Park at a place called Ravencrest, so they're in in store for a great week, but we want to pray for them, pray for safety, and pray for God's work in their lives. So take one of those bracelets as a reminder to pray for a high school student or a sponsor this week. If you're visiting with us, we have a welcome center, which is in the corner of the foyer here. Uh, As you head out these doors, kind of look to your left, you'll see it. Uh, We'd love to meet you there uh, and be able to get a little information about you so we can uh, follow up here in the future. From 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, it says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all forevermore. Amen.